Mac Power Users, Episode 625, Apple as the Measuring Stick with Austin Evans. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mac Power Users. I am David Sparks, and joined today, as always, by Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello, Stephen. Hey, David. How are you? I am excellent. I, uh, I'm getting ready to take a little vacation for a few days. Can't wait to do that. Haven't done that for a while. And uh, we have an excellent guest here today. Welcome to the show, Austin Evans. Hey, hey how's it going? Uh, Austin, we've been uh, booking you for a long time. Uh, we met, uh, you and I have only met one time. It was outside the, the hall there at WWDC back when that was a thing. <laughs> Aww. But uh, a lot of our listeners probably know Austin. Uh, he is a world-famous YouTuber and smart tech guy. He's a co-host of The Test Drivers, the podcast you've been doing with Mike Hurley. And uh, man, all-around nice guy. Thanks Aww. for coming in. Well, it's very kind. No, thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I feel like you guys have been doing this for so long. I'm glad I'm finally able to hop on and, and chat for a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I love about having you on the show, Austin, is that you work not only with Apple gear, but you work with all the gear and like, um, even, you know, you've got some really great stuff out there on video games. And I just love watching your channel because I learn something every time I watch one of your videos and I really enjoy it. And, but having someone with your kind of breadth of technology come in to talk to the Mac power users audience, I think you can really bring something to us today. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. Especially, I feel like this is a good time of year, you know, like last year was so crazy. And that's, I always like this kind of early part of the year because it's like CES is over. It's time to kind of reset and kind of get ready for, you know, the the April event and all kinds of stuff that's sort of like kind of nonstop for the rest of the year. So I, I always appreciate a little bit of calm before the storm. Yeah, I never really thought about that. But this is like the one time of the year tech people can breathe. Yeah, you picked a perfect time for a vacation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't worry. It'll be, you know, March and April events before we know it. So exactly. So Austin, you've been making tech content for uh, for a long time. And like David said, you cover a bunch of stuff. In fact, in More Power Users, the longer ad-free version of the show, we're going to talk about folding phones in particular because you have a lot of hands-on, like I was going to say pockets on, but that's not quite the right <laughs> phrase, hands-on experience with folding phones. But before we get to the tech, tell us a little bit about you and how you got into this business. Yeah, yeah. So... I started making content in 2009. So it was actually the iPod Touch that got me started. So I was super amped to get my first iPod Touch. I remember I was like on YouTube watching like app reviews, you know, when the app store was brand new. I had on my my PC, I had like a bunch of apps pre-downloaded in iTunes. So as soon as I got my iPod, I could just plug it in and like load up. Like I remember what it was at the time. It was just the super, super early stuff. But that's how I kind of got started. Just like I've always kind of had this sort of interest in technology and then sort of YouTube, I started watching content and then pretty quickly I was like, oh, I started creating it and then just made more and more and more. And then before I knew it, that was kind of, that was, that was the gig, you know? Remember when everyone lost their mind over monkey ball? You guys yes! remember that? Yes. Super <laughs> monkey ball. Ah, well, that was like what, especially with the iPod Touch, that was really the way that they had advertised it in those early days of like, oh, it's, it's kind of like the the mobile gaming thing. You've got the App Store and everything. You know, who needs a PSP or a DS? You've got an iPod Touch. And I remember as a kid being like, yeah, iPod, let's go. Yeah, Apple was really into that iPod Touch as the gaming platform. That was a weird time. <laughs> they were really into it for like a year and a half. And they never talked about it again. 
Oh, it's so sad. Like that iPod Touch was like for me, that was the gateway for so many things. Because at the time, like I didn't really have much. I mean, I had like a, an old like Windows Vista laptop, but that was pretty much it as far as like actual kind of like, you know, quote unquote, like real tech. You know, I didn't even have like a phone at the time. Um, but that iPod Touch was just such a great way, especially in the early jailbreaking scene. Like I was so into like making like my own themes and adding like a million nonsense, like downloaded things from the like, city. Like it was just a really fun time to kind of just really have fun and dig into tech and kind of really make it my own. And I know for me, it was just like, it was a very sort of formative time where I really kind of got to learn a lot about technology by kind of being very hands-on with it in a way that I feel like these days just, you know, you activate your new phone, you download a couple of apps, change a couple of widgets, you kind of call it a day. But back then, it just felt like it's just sort of the, the world of possibilities of what you could do to kind of customize your device. You know, it's really remarkable to me, the number of geeks I know that started with some form of I just wanted to customize things. I mean, going back to the old Macs, I, to me, it was like trying to make it do things, you know, customizing the original Mac, but you could go in and alter the icons. I mean, you could do so much stuff in that, on that system. And for so many of us just doing things like changing colors and icons was our first kind of mm-hmm. deep dive into this stuff. And I think that was kind of where the love affair started for me. And I think that's true for a lot of people. Yeah, we're a picky group, you know, and we want <laughs> we want things our way. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, Austin, you, you're talking about that time, and we're talking as, as if it's in the past, but we have seen uh, the last couple of years, you know, some of that cu- customization start to come back in, at least on the mobile side, and I think that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see what people do with shortcuts. It's wild to me. It really kind of reminds me of those old days, you know? I mean, because, you know, in that first iPod, I was excited because I just wanted a background, right? I didn't want a black background. I wanted, like, some cool, like, wallpaper and then changing the icons. And now the fact that you can do a lot of that kind of right out of the box, it's kind of removed a lot of the reason for, you know, all the jailbreaking and all the kind of the modifications that, you know, we used to do back in the day. But it kind of makes sense, right? You know, as things sort of develop and things get much, much more full feature out of the box. You don't need a bunch of cool developers coming up with wacky ideas of, you know, overloading the 128 megs of RAM on your iPod Touch or whatever, you know. It's, it's nice to kind of see that it's now it's just like, oh, I want to change this? Boom, five seconds. I can set it up or download some cool shortcut and I'm ready to go. So you started in this because you, you were interested in it. In it. Uh, at what point did you sort of look up and realize that this could be more than just a hobby or a way to explore your own interests and it turn into something bigger that can maybe even pay the bills one day. Yeah. So for context, so I started when I was 16. So that was when I kind of started the channel or I had had the channel a couple of years, but that was when I actually started like uploading to the channel. And uh, it was pretty quick because at the time the YouTube partner program was just rolling out. So there were a few of like the really big creators like, you know, like Phil DeFranco and I think like Ray William Johnson, a couple of those people, they had the, the partner program and, you know, they were actually starting to make money and hire their first employees and everything. But for me, it was more of like, oh, this is just really fun. Like I had never had a platform where I would be getting comments and ratings and be getting hundreds of views on videos. Like That was a really exciting thing for me. And so I knew sort of in the back of my head that sort of making money was a potential, but that really wasn't like a big motivation for the first, you know, little while. Like I tried to get, you know, I signed up for the partner program, like I think three different times before I actually finally got accepted. But I was just making content because it was something that really excited me. It was such a cool feeling to be able to make stuff and actually kind of get like that real time feedback, you know? So that was kind of how it started. But about a year in when I actually got partner 
and I got my first check. I remember $160. I got <laughs> that check in and I was like, oh boy, here we go. Let's, I, I was, I was all in. I was like, nah, sorry, mom, I'm not going to college. I'm making YouTube videos. And <laughs> that conversation, uh, didn't go so well, but it, thankfully it worked out. Uh, I'm sure that that conversation was hard. I know my own version of it. And, you know, I went to school, I had a career, I didn't, you know, and then we started Relay and, and really it was me walking away from the career I'd been building. I remember telling my parents and my, in particular, my in-laws like, hey, you know, I'm going to go chase this thing that we've been building on the side. And it doesn't matter like if you went to school or not, or if you're 16 or if you're 26 or 46, like anytime you make that decision, uh, those conversations are hard. And, you know, David in a way is just going through it now, uh, being full-time Max Barkey and dropping the law practice, right? It's oh, a, man. It's a big yeah. move. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I there are some people in my personal life who are just viscerally angry with me <laughs> about this. And, uh, you know, it just, it's weird, you know, but, you know, life is about change. You got to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it makes sense, especially for you, man. Like, it just, it's such a big move, but like, we only have so many, I feel like I'm get deep here, but like you only have so much time on earth. You got to appreciate it. You got to do what makes you happy, you know? And as long as you can pay the bills and take care of your family and everything, like I feel like it, it's it's the right move to maybe sometimes take a risk and just do what sort of personally fulfills you if you at all have the option. Like I feel like that just, to me, obviously I've been incredibly fortunate. I think as all of us have been to be able to kind of turn our passions into careers, but not a lot of people actually have that opportunity. So it's it feels like it's almost a waste if you have it and you kind of throw it away because you want to kind of do the the safe and easy path. I agree. And and life is short. I'll tell you what, guys. I mean, I I'm the I'm the ancient one of us. I'm 53. But I I remember when I thought 53 was ancient. And now <laughs> it feels pretty young to me. So go figure, you know. The sliding scale. But uh, but you're right, though. And, and the thing, though, Austin, is you started early, so it really gave you a chance to kind of build without any risk, you know? Um, yes. We, we have listeners, because I, I, I don't know if you kept up, Austin, but just like a few months, well, actually, at the beginning of this month, I announced that I had shut down being a lawyer and doing this thing. And I got so many email from people out in the world who are going through the same thing right now. And they're people who really are like people who you think have made it, like, heads of surgery and tenured professors and people who are really looking to make that change. And I think the, the longer you get in a career, the harder it is. I mean, the more inertia and stickiness you have to get over to make changes like that. Yeah. Not easy. No. And I think you've made an incredibly bold move. Like for me, my big fear was just getting like my AdSense removed. Cause I mean, the, the big thing was like back in the day, all it took was someone to like click bomb your channel, click on like 20 ads. And then your AdSense is permanently banned in the end. Like those are the kind of worries that I had, but I always knew like, Oh, whatever. I'll, I'll go work at Best Buy or whatever. I didn't have any responsibilities. I didn't have my own place. None of that kind of stuff. It's yeah. a very different world. Once you actually have kind of built that up and, you know, you kind of almost have something to lose in a way. Yeah, no, I get it. But you did it, man. And you stuck with it. And you've got an amazing, you know, kind of presence here. And you're making great content. I mean, so often, I think people get into this whole thing, like, th this has been a thing in my life the last few weeks is, what do I call myself? Like, it's hard to call yourself a content creator without like rolling your eyes. Yep. Um, but that's what you are. And some people are good at it. And some people aren't. And it's a skill that you learn and you've kind of nailed it down. I mean, it's the stuff you do is so impressive. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, yeah, I definitely hear you though on like what 
is your sort of like identity. I, I, I think it's a good sort of way of thinking about it because I think a lot of times people use the influencer kind of way, which is, I think, I mean, it's a catch-all, but it also doesn't like, I think there's a lot of different kind of people who create content and I don't necessarily think that the influencer badge covers everything. I, I think it's, it's like, it's one thing if you're Logan Paul, I think it's another thing if you are uh, making YouTube videos about iPhones or something. Like, I, But it's like, I think it's important because in so many ways, even though it's gotten better, it's there's this sort of almost like stigma around like being called like a YouTuber or a TikToker or I mean, I think podcaster probably has like the most cachet out of all of them. But it's like most mm -hmm. people don't look at those as real jobs. You know, most people are like, oh, yeah. that's, you know, I, I'm sure even with podcasting, right? Like how many people have a podcast that has like five views on the side and they call themselves a podcaster and their family goes, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. Like I think there's like a lack of legitimacy. It's gotten better, but I think there's a lot of people who just don't quite understand like hey no this is like a real thing like i'm i'm, I'm making it i'm out i'm out here mm -hmm. and i think content creator to me is like a sort of I, that's like the best way to say it to me because it's like you know like, everyone can be a creator it doesn't mean that you're like some huge big deal or whatever but also i mean as a creator as a content creator i feel like it means something more than just like oh i i made a tiktok that was kind of funny it's like no like this is actually like my passion this is what i really want to kind of spend my time on and i think that kind of comes across a little bit better than some of the well, uh, I'm just figuring my stuff out, you know? Well, I, I'll tell you, when I say that word, half my family rolls their eyes. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, But, you know, I, the more I, so I've been thinking about this as I've gone through this transition. And what I really feel like is I've taken on a job as a teacher. I mean, that's, I'm now full-time teaching. And the stuff I do, I try to teach people. And I'm creating content to teach. But ultimately, I'm not creating content for the sake of content, you know? Um, I'm creating uh, things to help teach people. I haven't really figured out what my inner narrative is on this yet, but I mean, <laughs> it is something that, uh, that we all kind of have to deal with. Yeah. yeah. P part of that change is going from the person, you know, making something in your bedroom or your apartment to building it into a business. You know, Austin, I noticed from watching your videos and knowing you behind the scenes, you have built out this, this company. Now you've got employees and you've got studio space what was that transition like and how did your how did your use of technology or, or some of your workflows need to change a little bit as you went from kind of, hey, I'm just here talking to the camera about this iPod to where you are now? Oh, man, uh, organization was the big one. I mean, I, when I was by myself and I didn't really work with anyone, I mean, I kind of worked whenever I sort of felt like it. I, I remember like it was it was a very different time sort of pre and post sort of the company and actually kind of started to hire people and whatnot. Because in those early days, especially kind of, you know, in my early 20s, I just worked like that was the only thing I ever did. Like I remember I would surface every couple of days for like some pizza or something. And otherwise I would just be shooting videos, editing videos, going to sleep, just doing it over and over again, which I know is it sounds kind of bad because like that's not that was not a healthy way of of living at all. But there was a year, year and a half there where that actually was like it it was really fulfilling to me. Like it was something that I really enjoyed doing, and I think in a lot of ways it kind of propelled me and propelled the channel to hit a sort of a, a larger point where I actually could bring people on and sort of start spreading spreading the work. But uh, I think it was about seven years or so of doing everything myself uh, before I actually hired. Ken, who was the very first employee, and we got our studio space. He flew out and kind of moved out to California. And from there, 
things completely flipped because like in those early, early days, you know, the first couple of months, we were really, really successful. Like the stuff that he was helping me make, like instantly was doing a lot better. And to me, I was like, oh my God, like we just, you know, I just went from being me to like two people. I'm like, we've doubled our monthly views in like two months. Like it was like, it was a really wild time. Obviously kind of things had to settle that down a little bit and sort of we continued to expand. But the big thing was really the organization because uh, when it was just me, you know, like I said, I would just work whenever I felt like it. There was not really any kind of work-life sort of difference. Uh, and when Ken came on, we also still, I mean, there were a lot of like late, late nights of us just sitting at the studio, just kind of making stuff because, you know, we were trying to, you know, we were so excited about all the, the success that the channel was seeing. But now that sort of we've got, you know, almost 10 people who are on the staff, we have a number of studio spaces, there's a lot more stuff. And, you know, I've got a family now, you know, so it's like I've had to kind of really change the way that the the business is sort of run where it's like, hey, guess what? I'm here at nine and I'm out at five. And yeah, I had to do a little bit of stuff here and there on the weekends or early in the morning or late. But like generally speaking, kind of, I do everything I can to make sure that me and everyone sort of who's part of the part of the crew, like we can kind of come to work, get what needs to be done. And then we can kind of like leave it behind sort of as much as possible and try to, you know, enjoy an actual sort of regular life. And that was a big, big shift because it was not like that at all for me for a very long time. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Text Expander from Smile. Go to TextExpander.com slash podcast and get 20% off and type more with less effort. What can you do with more hours every month? Repetitive typing, little mistakes, searching for answers, they're all taking precious time away from you and your team. With Text Expander, you can take it back so you can focus on what matters most in your business. With Text Expander, you and your team can keep your message consistent, save time and be more productive, and be accurate every time. The way we work is changing rapidly. Make work happen wherever you are by saying more in less time with less effort using Text Expander. You will never need to copy paste repetitive responses again. With Text Expander, your knowledge will always be at your fingertips with a quick search or abbreviation. So here's how it works. You drop your commonly used content into a text expander snippet and give it an abbreviation. Then you share the snippet with your entire team. Just type a few characters to trigger your snippet and the content expands anywhere you type. It's really that easy. And I've got a power tip for you. It's text expander inline search because I have hundreds, if not thousands of snippets at this point, and it's sometimes hard for me to remember them. I have set a hotkey in the text expander preferences for inline search. For me, it's control option command I. I just trigger that and then the inline search pops up on my screen and I can find any of my buried snippets. If you're a text expander power user like me, this can really help. Best of all, text expander is available on Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. And show listeners get 20% off their first year. Just go to textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more and sign up for text expander. And finally, we want to give our thanks to Text Expander, which was the original sponsor of the Mac Power users, for all of their support. Okay, Austin, I'm a devout listener to the Test Drivers podcast. And that means I know about oh, no. how you work. No, no, and, no, no, no. You don't know anything. That's it's all, I know it's all what fake. you told Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and what you told Mike at one point was that you, your personal productivity, your sort of workflow centers around the use, not of Google Docs, plural, <laughs> but one singular Google Doc. Please explain. 
Okay. Uh, I, I would just say that you're working on some old information. Oh, um, am that, I? Okay. Mike, Mike has reformed me. Uh, I am a upstanding member of the Todoist community. That's good. Uh, uh, yes. So in previous times, uh, I may or may not have had one Google Doc that I just dumped a lot of nonsense in, including like some stuff that should have lived in a calendar or in Trello or any number of other places. But but I'm I, I I've changed my ways now. So nowadays uh, I live entirely in my calendar, especially now that we have multiple spaces. I've kind of have to schedule studio time with, and then uh, we use Trello a lot as well. I still use Google Docs, but much more so for what it's actually intended to be used for, which is like scripts and notes and that kind of stuff. Um, and then to do us like I think. Between Google Calendar and Todoist, like that's about 80% of my organization. It's still not perfect. There's still ways I feel like it could be improved. But uh, compared to where it was maybe a year, two years ago before uh, Mike helped kind of put me mm -hmm. back on the right path, it was, uh, it was a little shaky then. But it's, it's much better now. I promise you. It's much, much better. Definitely. Well, that, that's good to hear. I listened to that episode and I was just like, I was in my car. I was like, what is he doing? Like, <laughs> I'm just going to keep driving all the way to California and fix it. But Mike, Mike beat me to it. I mean, I do kind of like the idea of saying, I'm just going to do all of my whole system on one piece of paper, or in this case, one Google Doc. I mean, what could go wrong with that, right? Nothing ever went <laughs> wrong. It was flawless. And I never forgot things or missed things or had to go and search through 20 pages of a doc. Uh, look, those are dark days, okay? Uh, we, all, we all learn. We all we all grow, right? It's it's fine. It worked out. Well, it becomes a challenge when you've got additional people on your team, you know, and I, yes. I want to kind of get into that in a, in a little bit. But before we do, I mean, uh, a long tradition here on the Mac Power Users when we have a guest in, we got to know what are you using? You know, what what is your Apple gear? Yeah, yeah. So my primary system is a 14-inch uh, MacBook Pro. Um, so uh, I made the poor decision of getting the Max instead of the Pro because uh, I figured like, oh, I wanted like the extra like ProRes encoding for video editing and whatnot. The problem is I feel like that was not worth it for the battery life trade-off. Like hmm. I'm sure, I mean, I, I'm not exactly, I think, the first person to complain about this. But like for me, the Max, I think, was the wrong decision. I love the power of it. And I, I like the 14-inch sort of as a laptop. But I find in a lot of ways, I kind of don't love it the way that I loved the 13-inch M1 MacBook. Like, that laptop was amazing to me. Like, the only thing it really didn't have was more ports. And I guess it would have been nice to have a little bit more RAM. But, like, I absolutely loved that device and used it every second I could from the time it came out, like, for the full year until the 14 came out. Now that I have the 14 it's nice and it's better in some ways, but also in a lot of ways, it just hasn't sort of clicked with me like in the same way that that other M1 did. So the device I actually use most often isn't the MacBook anymore. It's actually the iPad mini. I actually do a lot on the iPad mini. In fact, I'm actually heading out on a trip. Uh, actually, I've got two different trips this week and I'm going to only take the iPad mini for both, which I may or may not regret because there's still some issues with things like Safari networking and YouTube studio for some things that are important to launch videos. But like generally speaking, I actually find myself enjoying using the iPad mini more than that 14 inch MacBook. It's not been that long. So I think part of it is definitely the honeymoon phase hasn't fully worn off, but the iPad mini, I just love the size. I just love that it gives me sort of all the power of like the, the iPad pro or whatever for what I need, but in such a tiny form factor where it's just a no brainer to always take it with me. You know, it's funny that iPad mini has got a lot of people excited about iPad. I know, Steven, you're another one. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love the mini. Uh, I like that it doesn't have to like be a laptop replacement. It can kind of be its own thing and ultra, ultra portable. In fact, I pulled out my 11-inch iPad Pro over the weekend. I hadn't used it since I got my iPad mini. It was totally dead, so I plugged it in, came back to life. It was some old version of iOS 15. And uh, I was like, I'm going to like spend the weekend with it just around the house because I've been so in love with the mini. And I think it actually reinforced my love for the mini that I just, I love that form factor. Yeah. Okay. So are you guys using pencils with them? Uh, I have the pencil. Uh, I use it very rarely. I'm taking it with me for this trip because I know I'm going to be taking a lot of notes. So I'm going to use the pencil to take notes. Generally speaking, though, I just use it with the smart cover. And then what about text input? I mean, do you miss a keyboard? So, uh, yeah, yeah, I do. I, if there was a way to have like a little Bluetooth keyboard that I could like pull out, sometimes that would be nice. But I find that like one of the things, like when the 11 inch first came out, especially when the Magic Keyboard first came out, I was like, this is it. I've got my keyboard. I've got my trackpad. Like this was like everything that I had been hoping for. But then I started bumping into sort of the limitations of iPadOS a little bit more because I tried to use like a laptop, right? And I think... Yeah. It was almost like the fact that I had what I had always been waiting for made me realize the things that was still missing. Whereas when I don't have the actual keyboard and the trackpad, I'm just using the iPad, especially I use it sort of in vertical orientation and kind of like two finger type sort of like or two hand type kind of the way I would on a phone. To me, when I'm using it like that, it's sort of like, hey, wait a minute. If you've got to really sit down and write some huge amount of text or whatever, grab a laptop, grab something that's better than that, right? Like that's not what the iPad, at least for me, is really meant for. But for sitting down on the couch and spending an hour knocking out some emails or making some notes or watching some videos. It, to me, I don't really find myself missing the keyboard or the trackpad. It, it feels like it's sort of a, it's, I'm using the iPad the way that iPad is really meant to be used. I'm not trying to sort of overstress it like I did with the iPad Pro and pretending that it was a full laptop. Yeah, I really think that you're onto something. I think that the, you know, the iPad mini is the iPad experience where the iPad Pro tries to be a laptop and that's where it like puts a magnifying glass over all the ways it's not a laptop yeah yeah and it's like i know i feel like especially in sort of our industry between us it's like uh, there are a lot of weird random things you need to do right like i know for me like there are like documents that i get on a regular basis that are on a site that just doesn't work in safari on ipad period right it just it fails it doesn't let me download stuff and so there are times in which i need a laptop full stop period and like that's okay like i sort of have the option i can use the laptop when i need it but for the vast majority of what i do on a day-to-day basis the ipad is totally fine yeah maybe it takes me five extra seconds to write out that email or whatever on the touch keyboard instead of using the actual physical one but in the flip side it's something that I can pretty much always have on me. And the the limitations, yeah, I think it, it just mentally, I know that I'm not going to sit down and do quote unquote real work on the iPad. So I, I don't plan on doing that. Like I just know that I can sit down and do the, the smaller, lighter weight tasks that are really the majority of my day. And then I have to worry about it. Have you played much with the voice to text, you know, the Siri dictation stuff that the iPad now supports? a little bit it honestly it is really good but most of the time i i feel like i don't want to sit there and like write out emails using voice i just to me i just still feel kind of self-conscious of that i was just like so uh paragraph four please remove this red line text like i'm not gonna do that i'm just gonna sit there and type quietly and be like 
Oh, you gotta remove that. That's I, I, yeah. I feel like that's more of a personal thing for me, though. No, no. It, it is really hard to do that publicly. Like I would never do it, like on an airplane or something. But oh like, my god, oh my but god. It, it, but if you're alone, I, I do find it pretty useful. You know, it's nice when you're alone. It is incredibly good too, especially way like even that's like punctuation and stuff. I also from time to time pull out the pencil and try to use the pencil, and like it's like it's got flashes of brilliance for me, but then it like fails in a way i'm like oh wait hang on what's the thing oh i scratch it oh no it oh it didn't remain oh, oh oh like there's definitely points in which like i get really frustrated with it so like i generally just use the pencil more for actually just handwritten notes in the notes app and then just kind of i copy paste that out later but i kind of wish that the handwriting had like another punch up or two to kind of be just a little bit more robust because i feel like there's a lot of reasons why i would love to just sit there and just write out you know my tweets or whatever the case is and to be able to rely on it and not have to actually pull up the keyboards often and kind of make corrections, which maybe that's just me and my bad handwriting, but it still feels like the system, which is like 80% there and could be a lot better, especially considering just how convenient it is to keep a pencil on versus, you know, a, a full magic keyboard or whatever on an iPad. Yeah. Well, Apple does say that, you know, this is a, you know, machine learning exercise and it feels to me like you're right. It's not fully baked yet. Cause I've had the same experience where like you write with it. And I, I generally write in all caps, you know, with the, with a higher capitalized letters are just bigger for me, but small case are still caps. And, and I guess whoever was programming at Apple never figured out that people do that. Cause I have all oh. sorts of troubles with my uh, capitalization. Um, you know, the other thing, Austin is you could get a folding keyboard for that. You know, they make those, they're like 30 bucks on Amazon, little cheap Bluetooth keyboard that'll fit in your pocket. Maybe yeah. I kind of feel like that might be something I want to try, not to necessarily carry around with me everywhere, everywhere, but yeah. it's something that I can leave sort of in like my backpack or something. And, pull it out when I need it, especially if it has, well, actually, to be fair, I don't even need a stand because I have the smart cover. I've thought about it. I I probably should. I just want to be really hyper aware of when I try to ask the iPad to do too much, I end up sort of disappointing myself. So I just kind of want to like make sure like I'm in like a happy little space with the iPad. I know at cer certain points, like maybe it's going to be on this trip or whatever. I'm just be like, oh my God, I can't do this on the iPad. What am I going to do? Yeah. But I think most of those times, the keyboard's not going to be the thing that's going to hold me back. It's going to be some like Safari thing or it's going to be some website or it's just going to be something that's going to be like fundamental that I just won't be able to work around. And those are usually the big issues I have with the iPad, even after uh, however many years it's been since they're like, it's a laptop replacement. And everyone's like, no, it's not. I wish Apple would stop saying that because, you know, their marketing team believes it's a, a laptop replacement, but their software team does not. You know, I think that's what it comes down to. I mean, it's gotten better, right? Like, I think whatever it was, it, the first version of iPadOS that had like the quote unquote real version of Safari that could do like Google Docs and everything like that was amazing. Like, to me, that was like a huge, huge jump. But then, like, I still run into, like, things like Gmail, right? Like, I've tried to open up Gmail on the browser. It's trying to default me to, like, the crappy mobile version. And then I try to move between Google accounts. And, like, it still doesn't work. Like, there's still enough of those things that, like, I have to kind of remove myself. Like, nope, don't try to do this. You're just going to get yourself frustrated. You can yeah. make it happen if you spend five minutes refreshing and doing this and that. It's just, like, those are the experiences where I'm just like, man, I'm just going to grab a laptop and just forget about this whole iPad experiment. But the portability brings me back every time, you know? So that's why I'm like, if I can stay in my little happy space, I'll, I know I'll be fine, but I can't always stay in my happy space. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I part of that is a, is a argument for a much more portable Mac, right? They got rid of the little one port MacBook because it was kind of a bad computer, but maybe there's room in 
the landscape of Apple Silicon to do that? Would that be something that would be interesting to you, Austin? 1000%. I love that 12 inch MacBook, man. Like, I remember, like, remember that was like the first USB C device, or at least that was the first USB C device that I had used. I remember being like, oh, it's amazing. Like, I think I did a video of like, I tried to plug in as many things as I could USB C because I was so excited about it. I remember I had like a floppy disk, like, attached to like via like three adapters and everything. I was like, look, this is all you ever need. And it also, like, look, I'm, I'm, this is a safe space, right? Like, I can, I can, I can be open and honest with you guys. Oh, yes. Yes. Bring it. I actually liked the keyboard of the 12 inch MacBook, the butterfly keyboard. Or no, that was the first butterfly keyboard, right? That was the, on the very 12 inch first MacBook. One. I liked it. I was like, oh, this is kind of like, like a typewriter or something. Obviously, hindsight has proven that to be very wrong. But like that first 12 inch MacBook, the only reason that I couldn't really use it properly was because it fell short in video editing. And especially back then when I was still, I was still completely doing all 100% of the video edits by myself. It was vaguely usable, but it wasn't great. If that had a little bit more performance, I, I'd probably still be using it right now. Yeah, I, I feel like the feel of that keyboard, there, there was nothing wrong with it. It was different, and a lot of people didn't like it because it was different or it wasn't their thing. And if it had worked, I think we would have never got a replacement for it. But, you know, the problem was the space bar stopped working after six yeah. months, and that, that's not good. Uh, but they just never got it to work right. But, you know, it is what it is. But I'm with you guys. I wish they would make like an ultralight. Now that you have Apple Silicon, just think about it. I mean, the processor and the iPhone can drive a computer. I mean, what if you just made a real basic, super light one? I think that the updated MacBook Air is going to be their version of that. I don't think they're going to make a separate ultralight, but it would be cool to see what they could do. I love an 11 or 12 inch because the 11 inch air was actually, that was my first MacBook. Um, so sure. I had like an iBook. I had a couple of like older systems, especially in the early days of the channel when I was trying to experiment. But like the first, you know, real modern Mac I ever used was the 11 inch MacBook. And I used that, I think I used two or three generations of the MacBook Air for a while because it was just powerful enough to edit my videos. And I love that portability. So yeah, no, if they ever do, obviously, and you know, there'll be a new MacBook Air. I feel like it's probably going to be the same size, though, or roughly of the current one, which I'm sure is the correct size for 95% of the market. But for me, if there was something that was a little bit smaller that still had, like, you know, put an M2 chip in it, you know, just give me enough performance. I don't need anything crazy. But let me do that and then also have a super lightweight device. I don't care if I have, you know, one port. I don't care. Give me, I'll take a butterfly keyboard. I don't care. I just want something that's really tiny that I can carry around with me. And realistically, that would be my do-everything device. I wouldn't carry an iPad. I wouldn't carry a MacBook Pro. I, I would do everything on a super thin, light MacBook Air. But I feel like if the MacBook Air still is that 13, 14-inch size, uh, then I'd rather probably have the extra performance of the Pro. I really only want it if I've got the super, super small size to go along with everything else. So we've talked about the Mac and the iPad, uh, but what are you carrying as far as an iPhone? So I had a glorious, amazing year with the iPhone 12 mini. I had a lot of great times with that phone. It was it was. My favorite iPhone, I think, ever. I think it's safe to say. It was not perfect, but I loved the Mini. But when the 13 came out, I saw the new camera on the Pro and ProRes and 120 hertz. And So, yeah, I'm on the iPhone 13 Pro now. I don't love it. Every time I look at my little iPhone 12 Mini, which now just kind of sits there on my bedside, and you know, I use it for, like, music and watching video and stuff. Every time I pick it up, I'm like, oh, yes, the correct size for a phone. So... Hmm. I would go back to the mini if I could, but the, the camera, like we actually used the iPhone 13 Pro camera 
Uh, we use that for a lot of our videos, like not even just like sometimes I'll throw like an extra mic on it or whatever, but like a surprising amount of our videos are actually shot on the iPhone 13 because it's so seamless, so simple. And even without shooting in Pro, it's just a regular 265, 4K 24 looks amazing. So that is really the main reason why the iPhone 13 Pro has remained and I haven't sort of jumped ship to the mini, even though I, not gonna lie, I think about it probably on like a monthly basis of like, mm, let me enjoy the last mini before it rides off into the sunset. Okay, so can I just go down a little rabbit hole with that for a minute? Because I this is something very much on my mind lately. Um, shooting video with the iPhone, the current you know Pro iPhones versus a big boy camera. Can we do that for a second, guys? Is that yeah? All right? Yeah, I so I I'm like you know you I I'm trying to get better at the way I shoot video. I've got a nice Sony camera. I shoot a lot of my in studio stuff with the Sony. But my wife is like a massive Disneyland fan. And Austin, you know, you get this, you're, you're local. So I tried bringing the Sony camera to Disneyland and I got some good footage there. But number one, I was panicked the whole time. Like, what if <laughs> this thing, you know, it's like $2,000 by the time you add yeah. up the lens and everything. It's like I bang this into a trash can or falls out of my bag. I'm going to just sit there and weep like a, like a, like a, like a baby. And then. So then I started trying the phone and the one thing I found while the phone footage isn't quite as good, the stability on the phone is crazy. I mean, like I cannot get that Sony camera to shoot stable footage. I mean, they, Oh, am I going to bring a gimbal to Disneyland now? <laughs> is that what I'm going to do? You know? And then like they do like Sony has software to try and stabilize it in post-production, but I'm just starting to realize that for a lot of people, the iPhone video is not just good enough. It's good. Yes. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Like there are a lot of times, especially with some of the videos that we shoot actually in a very similar kind of way to you of like, I in Disneyland, you're not really supposed to take a professional camera around. And you oh, know, yeah. if you're carrying something that like, you know, it's around your neck, you look at tourists, no one's going to look twice. But if you try to bring in something that's a little bit beefier, you're, you're going to get kicked out, right? You're not supposed to do that. And for us, we shoot in a lot of like sort of areas that we're not technically supposed to like, you know, walking through a Best Buy or something. I might want to shoot a quick clip of looking at a laptop. If I bring in a big camera, 100% gonna, people are going to say something, right? But we pull out the iPhone, zero people ever say anything, right? So, like, there's advantages in just the sort of the, the smaller size. But also, I 100% agree on the quality as well. I think the iPhone shoots better video in most scenarios than the vast majority of sort of, like, prosumer kind of cameras. Because, yeah, sure, with your Sony, if you set it up and you have the right lighting, you have a nice lens, blah, blah, blah. It'll look better than the iPhone, right? Like the, you can do more things with that. It gives you more sort of capability. But if you're just sort of running and gunning, or even if you just want to set up something simple that looks nice, you pull your iPhone out, you drop it on a tripod, you hit the record button. Like it's going to yeah. sound pretty good. It's going to look pretty good. You know, if it's in low light or this or that, it might not be great. But like it has come so far, and especially with the stupid 13 Pro with that huge sensor and the nice lens and all the processing that they're doing. It is such a sort of do-everything device that for me, I mean, we're moving more and more iPhones into like our mainline production. Like we still have Sony cameras. We've actually recently sort of cycled our red out of uh, out of production in favor of these Sony A7S3s and the FX3s. But even with these cameras, even though they definitely give us a look that the iPhone can't emulate yet, and I don't think it will be able to for a while on the very, very high end of things, but for a lot of our stuff and more and more going forward, the iPhone is 100% fine. Sometimes we'll throw a mic on it. Sometimes we'll, you know, maybe add some more lights or whatever here and there. But generally speaking, the iPhone with next to no effort 
gets you a great looking image that is completely passable for pretty much anything you want to do with it. Yeah. I mean, just like going out, like even like lighting, when I take a footage, you know, we, we did a shot at the Mark Twain and I took it with the Sony and it was too dark. It just didn't come out right. And I tried to fix it, but it looked, you know, pretty bad. And then yeah. I shot a very similar one with the phone and the phone fixed the lighting in camera, you know, and I get that like, there's a, there's a bunch of videos out there that will show you. People will take an a seven S three. Like, what is that? Like a $4,000 camera or something like that. Yeah. Something like that. And, and they'll compare it to an iPhone. They'll say, look here, you can see how it's different. And this one isn't as good. And I'm like, yeah, but one of them you already own. The other one is a $4,000 camera before you put yeah. lens on it, you know? And I just, I do think that um, the internet needs to, to rethink the narrative there. Uh, what, what about cinematic mode? Is that, is that where you draw the line? I know a lot of folks are like, Oh, that's not good enough. Yet. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, there's some problems. I think it's good. I think actually, uh, we have, uh, one of our channels, uh, Xbox ready. They actually shoot on an iPhone 13 with cinematic mode. Now, to be fair, he uses a very sort of static angle. So it's easy to kind of like, basically, you know, if anything looks a little bit weird, he can just kind of move a prop a little bit forward, a little bit backward or, or whatever. But generally speaking, no one really notices, especially if you pair that with external audio that, you know, sounds really rich. Most people don't really care about the video. And honestly, 1080p 30, while I would love for 24p to be an option because that's pretty much what all of our content is, for a lot of people, that's completely fine. Now, the thing is, cinematic mode, I feel very confident in saying over the next few years, we'll just get better and better to the point where I don't think it'll ever be quite perfect, but I think it'll be good enough the way that portrait mode is good enough most of the time. The main things I actually wish I could see out of the iPhone, really, really most specifically in the video side, the ultra wide and the telephoto are leagues behind the main sensor and the main lens, right? Like, oh, I think. Yeah. Yeah. If you're shooting, especially video, right, where you have to have, you know, the higher shutter speed and everything, and you want to be able to kind of push up ISO sometimes, with that bigger sensor, the iPhone main camera looks great. It is very, very rare that I will ever shoot video on the ultrawide or the telephoto unless I'm in immaculate lighting or unless I really, really need to zoom in or really, really need to sort of keep a super wide angle. So that's, I think, actually what I would love to see more. I think the ultrawide, I mean, sorry, the standard wide angle on the iPhone is basically good enough. I'm sure they'll continue to improve. But like, if that just stays the same for a couple of years, I'll be totally fine. I just love to see some of that same quality come over to both the ultra wide as well as the telephoto lenses. Yeah, I totally agree. I've come to discover that the the wide and the zoom are buttons that you never press when you're shooting video. Yeah, I mean, unless you're in great lighting. In great yeah. lighting, they're all right. But you need to be like basically shooting like in sunlight, really, because the just the drop and everything is just it's very apparent it does not look anywhere near as good this episode of mac power users is made possible by indeed maybe you're successful in business because you love doing the research whether it's the state of the market or the next right hire but you're probably low on hours and you still want to do a good job hiring so where do you go for help it's time for indeed because indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements, or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. 
With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Here's a stat for you. Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. That blows my mind. So start hiring right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job posting at Indeed.com slash MPU. This offer is valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash MPU to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Our thanks to Indeed for their support of the show and Relay FM. So Austin, uh, we we kind of lost the thread there a little bit. You got me talking about cameras, um, <laughs> but uh, tell us how are you getting things done? Are you still just running everything out of a Google Doc at this point? I mean, it's sure, surely with all those employees, I bet you've got a a few systems in place at this point. Yeah, yeah. Thankfully, uh, yeah. so uh, probably the number one thing is Trello. So all of our projects live inside of Trello. I think I probably share the same sentiment as a lot of people, where Trello's like fine. It's still not amazing but it does the job for us and it's something simple enough that the entire team can use so basically we have you know the the cards that kind of go from like ideas to concept approvals to sponsor approvals to pre-production production edit etc etc like kind of the cards go all the way down the line and it's an easy way for the entire team to kind of know at a glance oh hey this project needs to be finished by you you need to do this or that or oh hey i just am curious what's going on with that video that oh it's three weeks out or whatever the case is in addition to Trello, we use uh, Google Calendar, pretty self-explanatory. We have a number of different calendars for production, for actual like workflow stuff, as well as for the upload flow between the different channels to make sure that you know every channel can post on its own uh, cadence and no one's stepping on each other's toes and whatnot. Um, and then for communication, I think like a lot of people, we use Slack. Nothing too exciting there. But really, our workflow is not... I don't think it's like particularly crazy. I feel like we've kind of landed on a lot of pretty standard, pretty safe tools. I know that there's a lot of other things out there, but for the most part, as long as everyone's kind of synced up on the same page, we've got a, I would say mostly an assembly line kind of process of sort of, you know, production team comes up with the ideas, shoots the ideas, lets the edit team know that, you know, footage is up on the server, but edit team downloads the server, uh, downloads the footage, starts cutting through it, then sends the cuts back to production team to kind of approve. And then we post it from there. Like it's fairly straightforward. So there's not a lot of kind of back and forth or thankfully not a lot of room for confusion to kind of slide in there. Although obviously, you know, sometimes. <laughs> well, and we talked a little bit about how you shoot it, but how are you doing your edits? What What's your software stack? So Final Cut is what we've used uh, since probably 2015 and definitely since we started building out the team every everyone who's come on has to know final cut or at least anyone who's touching footage so yeah everything lives in final cut so we have uh some servers here that basically we do um our edit team is mostly remote uh they come in some sometimes but over the last couple of years they shifted to remote as kind of a lot of us did but they actually were able to pretty much stay remote which actually ended up having a lot of benefits there so essentially we have a bunch of footage on the server like I said, sort of we ping them like, hey, this f- footage is up or we finished this video or whatever the case is. And then they pull the footage down you know, at home, they cut it, and then they sort of send it back to us. But yeah, it's pretty much all just inside of Final Cut. This Final Cut, because um, I know that there's alternate video editing that's more kind of industry standard. 
How well does Final Cut work with like server-based footage and like the sharing amongst your team? Do you have any problems? Uh, it's fine. It's certainly not as good as something like Premiere, right? Like Premiere is definitely designed for those workflows better. So we use Final Cut sort of in a little bit more basic way where we use other tools to uh, download and upload footage. We don't ever let footage live inside the Final Cut libraries. We always kind of keep it in separate folders and just have Final Cut linked to things because we've had too many issues where... Theoretically, it's super portable. You just drop a library from here to there. But realistically, there's way too many issues that we've kind of run into. So we let Final Cut kind of live in its own little bubble where we, you know, handle all the the media management on the back end and just bring it into Final Cut. And then same thing, we kind of like export things out of Final Cut and that's how we share clips. So Final Cut very much sort of acts like it's sort of its own thing. But that being said, we do have multiple editors and pretty much all projects change hands a couple of times throughout the process. And thankfully... When we sort of make sure everyone has all the footage the same way, we just kind of share those Final Cut libraries with just the, you know, the project information on the inside. It actually is fairly portable. So our lives would be easier if we use something like Premiere as far as the collaboration side of things. But then Premiere and, well, DaVinci Resolve has actually gotten a lot better. But Premiere still has a lot of crashing issues. It's still very expensive to spend on the Adobe licenses. Whereas, you know, the Final Cut has been much, much faster, generally speaking, much more stable. And while we don't have all the bleeding edge features, it it really makes up for that and just the speed and just the reliability, which is by far the most important thing. And if you're running Apple gear, I mean, Final Cut really is engineered around Apple Silicon, which probably means your renders are super fast at this point. Oh, yeah. So that was the thing. We had been on a bunch of somewhat older Macs for a long time, right? So we were on we had a couple of the iMac Pros as well as uh, some like, you know, pre, uh, I guess, butterfly keyboard style like MacBook Pros. Yeah. And we had been waiting, you know, for Apple Silicon and I had switched over to the M1, but uh, for the rest of the edit team, they were kind of like, eh, I don't know quite yet. So we kind of waited for, you know, the next generation. And so when the M1 Pro and the M1 Max uh, MacBooks came out, uh, we basically like, you know what, let's just sort of torch it all down. We we pretty much sold all and got rid of all of our Intel Macs. And so edit team is fully switched over to 16-inch uh, MacBook Pros. And the speed of those things is crazy. Like just the ability to, like we see in Final Cut, we see exports of our ProRes. So we always export like a, a 264, like, you know, YouTube uh, version. And then we export a ProRes version for our own archival purposes. And those ProRes exports, they'll go at three to four times real time. So like a 10 minute video, it'll bounce out in like a minute and a half, two minutes, two and a half minutes. Like it is insane at how fast those things are. So it really has made a big difference, especially because sometimes, you know, we're doing really like newsy stuff, you know, like we're trying to get a video up really quick or like happened actually this weekend, we had uploaded a video, thought it was all good. Turned out there was an error in the, in the video. And so thankfully, you know, obviously there's only so much you can do with internet speeds, but at least on the final cut side, we were able to fix the error export the clip very, very quickly and get it uploading within, you know, 10, 15 minutes. And sometimes that can make a huge difference. Yeah. Well, I, I always, the tip, what I tell people is like on the old uh, Intel Max, the little progress indicator in Final Cut was like a minute hand. Cause if you look at it, it's a circle <laughs> that goes around like, like a minute hand. And now it's like a second hand. I mean, it's just that, <laughs> it's that different, you know? Yeah. It's wild, man. They, they, these things are so fast. Like I, Look, I've never owned a... Oh, sorry, let me take that back. I have not owned a Mac Pro since the 2013 trash can, which mm-hmm. I, I like that system, right? Like, that was that was, that was was a good system. But uh, I was never tempted by the 2019 MacBook, or the Mac Pro, because it's like, oh, that's overkill, whatever, it's fine, it's fine. 
I cannot wrap my head around how fast the Apple Silicon Mac Pro will be. Like, especially for video, which really feels like, I mean, that's what that system is designed for. It is gonna be absolutely bananas. If the 14-inch MacBook that fits in my bag, if it is as fast as it is right now, I just imagine Apple gluing four more of those chips together and shipping in a Mac Pro. It's gonna be just bananas. Yeah. Yeah, it's really wild to think about how that's gonna scale. You know, here we're recording the beginning of, of 2022, you know, hopefully we're going to start seeing this professional, you know, these professional desktops roll out. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine <laughs> what will be possible because, you know, I, I do have one of those 2019 Mac Pros. In fact, uh, you were there in the audience when we were when it was announced. And yep, uh, I have a selfie we all took together. Uh, <laughs> and it just that machine being so impressive for its time, but really my 14-inch MacBook Pro can like trade blows with it in most things, it's pretty hard to imagine what's next. Like this is going to sound crazy and I feel like I'm probably going to regret saying this, but we have kind of enough power now, which is, I don't think I've ever been able to say that of like, I honestly, obviously if I can export faster and blah, 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 but for all the things I need to do, even the most heavy duty like video editing tasks that I can throw at it, the MacBook is fast enough. Like, I would love it if it exports in 45 seconds instead of a minute or a minute and a half. But like, there's, I think, a certain point in which it's like, it's almost more of like a bragging contest more than anything else. Now, maybe we'll switch to 16K at one point and we'll reset everything. But like, we've been standardized on 4K since 2015. I don't foresee needing to go above that. We sit at 24. We don't sit at 60 or 120 or any of these things that some people might be trying, but for us has not been really necessary. And I don't think will be necessary for a long time. So it's like our workflow has been static for the most part. And the power of these systems to actually handle it has just absolutely just exponentially increased over the years to the point where it's like, yeah, I might want to upgrade my system next year, the year after, whatever, when some shiny new thing comes out. But do I need to? No. I feel like the existing systems we have today will probably last us longer than any system that has sort of we've had in the in the production pipeline for a long time. Assuming no reliability issues, the performance is absolutely there. We don't really need anything else. Yeah, well, there's a couple of things on that. First, I think that the, and this is just a hunch, I have no evidence, but I feel like these... Apple Silicon Macs are going to run forever. And my exhibit A for that is the iPad because this is basically the iPad chip, right? Or an advanced version of it. And iPads, I mean, I just got an email from a listener that has an iPad 2 and she's trying to get it running for her husband and she just has a login issue, but the iPad hardware is working fine. I, I feel like because you don't have as many parts in this thing, we're likely to get a very long life out of this hardware. Just a hunch, but I I think I suspect it's right. Yeah, yeah. And then the second thing is, I'm with you. I mean, the the Mac players audience is going to roast me for saying this at some point because uh, I really feel like I have enough. I, I got the Macs. I went all in with the 16 inch, and I'm running it as my production system. It's hooked up to my fancy monitor, but then I can take it and record in a different place, and it's fine. And I have a second hand instead of a minute hand. And I can't imagine, <laughs> like, if they announce a cube that has double the power of this, that would be very tempting for me because I have a, an unhealthy love of the cube. But yeah, uh, I, I probably won't get one. I mean, I don't need to spend that money for sure. And what I have is enough. I mean, I'm making 4K videos, but they're never longer than 20 or 30 minutes at the most. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm good. 
It's it's a good thing though, right? I mean, yeah. how long have we been like, oh, I wish oh my Core i9 would stop sitting 100 degrees Celsius when I open <laughs> yeah. Binder. Like, yeah. you know, it's it's nice that we finally kind of gotten, you know, the, the grass is really greener on the other side. So it's like, uh-oh, what do, what do we do now? Yeah, it's like we're the dog that caught the car. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's like, uh-oh. But yeah, I agree with you. Now, the other question I had for you on this whole workflow, though, is you are generating a tremendous amount of high-res video. What are you doing in terms of like backup and protecting your data and like just because we have a lot of listeners that have a lot of data and they're always trying to figure out how to make sure they don't lose anything. How are you keeping track of all that and not losing any of it? Oh, boy. Okay, so we have uh, a few different servers, right? So uh, basically to kind of run you through it. So we have sort of like a nearline server, which is sort of meant for projects that are actively being worked on, right? So, you know, edit team can, you know, when they're in the office, even though that really doesn't happen that much anymore, they can edit directly off the server. But generally speaking, that's kind of where we keep our existing sort of projects that are being actively worked on. As soon as a video is live and that we've kind of gone through and made sure that we have all of our assets and everything is kind of nicely, neatly packed together, it then goes to our sort of like midline server. That is a server that keeps all the raw footage and all the exports, pretty much everything that was involved in that video for about one and a half to two years based on kind of how it goes. So all of our raw footage sits there. Once it gets moved to that server, I then back it up to LTO tape. LTO tape is great because, you know, you're buying 12 terabyte tapes that are fairly inexpensive in the grand scheme of things, certainly cheaper than an equivalent hard drive, but are rated for archival purposes for like 30 to 50 years. You do need to unwind them, I guess, every like so ever many years. But we basically burn all of our raw footage, everything, everything that we shoot to LTO tape once the project is done. And then we do two copies of those. So we keep one offsite, one onsite if we ever need to pull that old raw footage. And then about, yeah, like I said, a year and a half to two years after a video has been up, we will then usually go back through and delete the raw footage off that server. So we still have it on tape if we ever really, really need it. But we delete the raw footage, but we still keep like the final export of the video and like the thumbnail, the captions, all that kind of stuff. For if we just want to quickly go, oh, hey, remember that Mac Pro video we did at WWDC? I can hop on the server and pull, you know, the YouTube export in full 4K. So that's kind of the workflow that we have. It's expensive, especially with the amount of you know, terabytes of server space and LTO tape and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and it definitely gets finicky sometimes, uh, but that's kind of the way that sort of we we handle our data. I'm a big proponent of keeping everything forever because you never know when you need it. Okay, that that was going to be my question because like I'm now in the content creation business and I'm tempted to throw all the like the source stuff overboard once I've rendered it. But make the case why I need to keep it all. You don't. <laughs> you don't. You don't. Yeah. I mean. For, for us, so we always kind of keep an eye toward future uses of content. Um, sure. We've had conversations with various different like, distributors and stuff of like, oh, hey, can we license a bunch of old episodes of Mystery Tech, for example, or whatever the case is. And in some ways, it's easy to do that because like we keep, when we do those uh, exports of videos, we like I said, we do like a YouTube export, which is just you know exactly what lands on YouTube. But we also do a ProRes export, which also has all of our audios separately uh, exported in channels. So for example, if I ever want to post an episode of Mystery Tech or, or, or license it to someone, whatever the case is, if I really, really quickly just give them a copy or whatever the case is, I can actually just give them the ProRes and just strip out the music, right? Which the licensing might not agree with or whatever the case is. Or... With that, I can actually chop the the episode up and sort of make a, a montage or a greatest hits DVD. Oh, that sounds old, but uh, you could do that kind of stuff. But for me, it's about the idea of 
you probably don't need it. And it's certainly expensive to hold on to all that footage. And I know a lot of other people, uh, you know, big YouTubers and all kinds of people just shred it, right? Especially considering you shoot 4K or 8K or all these huge files. But for us, there have been times where having that raw footage has been helpful, whether it's to pull B-roll for some old project, whether it's to revive some video that we worked on years ago that we came back and go, oh, you know what? It's finally time to, to do something with this. Or you never know when some big kind of opportunity comes up and you know you, you decide to sell the back catalog to Hulu or something. You could just say, oh, look, here are all of the assets. Here's everything you need. And you can be it can be recaught or whatever you need. So uh, it's more of a long-term like insurance thing is kind of the way I think about it. But I also am just a little bit of a completionist. I kind of like having that stuff because even though I probably won't ever use it, it's kind of nice to know that I've got it. I get it. No, I get it. I, I don't think there's really a wrong answer, but I, I do like hearing from different perspectives on this. Yeah, it gets expensive though. That's that's the biggest downside. It's a lot of expense, not only in the gear and the hard drives, the SSDs and the tape and everything. It's also just expensive and just man hours of keeping up with this stuff. Not only with edit team having to make sure that the packages are all nice and neat. And then I'm the one who's sitting there in the server swapping tapes out every couple of weeks and stuff. So it's like, uh, it's certainly probably not a great idea and there's a simpler way we could do it. But just to me, I, just, I like having that stuff. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Memberful. Go to memberful.com slash MPU for best-in-class membership software for independent creators, publishers, editors, podcasters, and more. Memberful is the easiest way to sell memberships to your audience, used by the biggest creators on the web. With Memberful, you can generate sustainable, recurring income while diversifying your revenue stream. You might have heard us talking about the Relay FM membership program, but what you might not know is Memberful is the platform we use for that program, and they make it super easy to generate that extra revenue stream and deliver bonus content to our members. My life has certainly evolved as I've got older and went from lawyer to full-time creator, and I really didn't know how to get there as things started to you know, kind of increase. And podcasting was always something very important to me, but we spent a lot of time creating the show, and it cost me a lot of money not working on the other job while we were doing it. I wanted more financial independence to run the podcast, and Memberful brought that to us. When COVID hit, you know, a lot of advertisers had to scale back their budgets, so we lost a lot of income. But bringing that membership program online, allowing the members to support the show, is what allowed us to keep that quality up. If you're generating content and you have users that you would like to have support you, I strongly urge you to check out Memberful. They've already solved all the problems, and they make it easy for you to just get back to the work of making content. I'm also experiencing that now as I use Memberful with the Max Sparky Labs. Maybe you're already producing content and relying on advertising or other means of income. Memberful makes it easy to diversify that income with everything you need to run a membership program, including custom branding, gift subscriptions, Apple Pay, free trials, private podcasts, and tons more. All while leaving you with full control and ownership of everything that relates to your audience, your brand, and your membership. And you can now send paid email newsletters directly through Memberful without needing to connect to a third-party email provider. You can even publish your paid newsletter content to a Memberful-hosted members-only website. And there's no additional fee when signed up for Memberful Pro or Premium Plans. Plus, you'll save money compared to other popular hosted newsletter platforms. If you're a content creator 
Memberful can help you monetize that passion. Get started for free at memberful.com slash MPU, where there's no credit card required. That's memberful.com slash MPU. Go there now and check it out. It could be the start of something exciting. And our thanks to Memberful for their support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. So, Austin, you get to spend time with the coolest new tech. I mean, your channel, you really cover everything iPhones, iPads, Android phones, PCs. You've you built a bunch of beautiful, amazing PCs over the years. So you're out in the world a lot more than uh, than a lot of people. Most people don't get the chance to touch all this stuff, test all this stuff. And that kind of led me to the question of of how is Apple stacking up? You know, what where are areas Apple's doing well versus their competitors? Where are areas you think they should pay better attention? Kind of what's your feel of the landscape? I mean, it's no denying that Apple is the the thousand pound gorilla in the space, right? Everyone, even in the gaming side, there's a lot of sort of people want to be Apple. People want to be sort of attached with that sort of brand cachet, the enormous piles of money in Timmy Cook's bank account. Like, I think there's a lot of incentive from pretty much everyone in the space to at least keep an eye on Apple, right? And I think certain places, there's no really denying that, like, you look at the iPhone, right? The iPhone has especially when it comes to like photos and videos, like one of the best camera setups, period, especially when it comes to video. I don't think it's even a a competition, right? Like, and you look at the, you know, just how solid the iOS side of things is compared to Android when you look at things like updates, right? Where, you know, a new version of Android came out a couple months ago on the Pixel. Pixel is one of the very few phones that gets updates pretty much day one. And it's been a buggy mess for months now, right? Uh, so many, like I, the percentage of people on Android 12 right now is probably tiny, right? I just got it on my Z Flip. And look, I love the Z Flip. But even here, I'm dealing with a bunch of Samsung default apps in addition to Google default apps. For some reason, every time I update my phone, the Facebook app randomly reinstalls itself. <laughs> Don't know how that happens. Not a big fan of that. So like, there's certainly a lot of huge sort of wins on the iPhone side as far as it works. You get updates for an incredibly long time when people are still rocking a 6S on the latest version of yeah. iOS. I think there's something to really kind of applaud there that, you know, even though that phone's probably feeling a little old at this point, guess what? It still works, you know, or, you know, that iPad too, it might not be getting updates anymore, but it still works. Like, I think there's a real sort of something to say about the longevity, but on the flip side, it's a little safe, especially on the iPhone, a little safe, a little boring, you know, there's, there's no flippy iPhone yet, right? And that's something that to me... That other side of the fence starting to look kind of cool if I can flip my phone closed, right? I mean, if you say so, we, we will get to that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of the most interesting things to me in, in the technology landscape over the last couple of years is this processor war that has sort of unfolded. So you had Intel for years now struggling to really move the ball forward. And then Apple comes like a comet out of the sky with Apple Silicon smashing into the Intel dinosaurs. Uh, I'm a <laughs> metaphorical kind of guy. I love it. I love uh, it. Deep, Stephen. Really Thanks. deep. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, Austin, as you get to use a lot of these uh, these PC notebooks, how how are they keeping up with what Apple's doing? Do you do you see hope for that that hardware stack in the future? Yeah, yeah. So, I think you're right. I think Intel were dominant for a very long time, and I think that dominance sort of bred. I don't want to say laziness because that's obviously not the phrase, but 
it, there was not a huge incentive to push and push really hard, right? And I think actually even before Apple Silicon really became a big thing, I think AMD actually deserves a lot of the credit of kind of waking Intel up because AMD was traditionally sort of laughed upon. They were like sort of the budget option. And for a lot, like most of the, the 2010s, AMD was kind of garbage down, right? But they pretty much bet the company on the Zen architecture. They made some very big and bold business decisions, but they ended up paying off. And AMD sort of out of nowhere sprung up as not only a major rival for Intel, but honestly, in a lot of ways, they actually were outperforming Intel. And considering that at one point, roughly in that early time, uh, AMD's entire market cap was like what Intel spent on marketing per year. Like, like the size and scale of the companies was way, way off. But AMD were still able to sort of pull off that sort of plucky underdog comeback. And I think that kind of really woke Intel up. And then, of course, Apple's over here like, oh, by the way, you know, those uh, Core i7s we've been buying for 400 bucks each for our very expensive and high-end uh, Mac laptops? Uh, yeah, we're good. We don't need any more of those. We'll yeah. just do our own thing. <laughs> I think between the two of those, it seriously woke Intel up. But honestly, I think that's a really good thing for everyone, right? Because we've got real competition. You don't have to just go out and buy an Intel-powered whatever because that's the only real option. You can buy a great AMD-powered device or buy something with Apple Silicon. And on top of that, Apple has been sort of very, I think, instrumental and in sort of pushing Intel to up the game because their latest stuff is pretty good. 12th gen, I mean, if you look on the desktop side, they've gotten to be up there with AMD and sort of really, really powerful, you know, gaming devices and whatnot. And then even on the laptop side with their 12th gen chips, they're not fully out yet. But from the stuff that we've been seeing that sort of since they've announced it, looks like, at least on the very, very high end, it's going to be somewhat competitive with the things like the M1 Pro and the M1 Max on the, the CPU side. And uh, yeah, it's going to get more power. It's going to be louder and blah, blah, blah. But it's a very far cry from the kind of the, the i7s and i9s we were using in the 15-inch the MacBooks, which were being choked because they wanted 100 watts and the, the system was designed for about 45. Yeah, you know, I, I really think that you know, Apple has become the measuring stick now because all the marketing and stuff I see coming out of Intel is like, oh, we've got something that's just as good as Apple Silicon. And I know there's both a performance and a, um, and a, uh, you know, the, the, is, there's a performance measuring stick and there's also a power draw measuring stick. I'm not, yeah. That's, power draw is not the right word. Um, efficiency, you know, sure. measuring stick. And I feel like they're, but, you know, they're not there yet. But at the same time, it's not like Apple, is actually using unicorn tears, right? The, this is something <laughs> that humans designed and uh, are able to make out of what exists in the world today. I don't see why, if Intel applied itself, they couldn't catch up. But you know, we're also assuming Apple would stand still, and they're not going to. Yeah, Apple has had this crazy lead in my experience on mobile devices for like going on ten years. Like they've, they're always years ahead of the Snapdragon or whatever the popular chip is over on the Android side, do you think they'll be able to maintain that lead, you know, much longer? So we're coming up on, yeah, 10 years. I think it was really the iPhone 5S. That Apple A7 was, I think, what really shook everyone up. Because I think, you know, when the first, you know, A4 and A5, they were fine, but they weren't really that special. A6 was pretty good. That was actually, I think it was right up there in trading blows. But A7 and the iPhone 5S, that... 64-bit support, the crazy, crazy performance that it was delivering, that was, I think, the moment where everyone was like, uh-oh, this is going to be a problem, right? And I think, like you said, they've sort of, once they grabbed the ball and started running, they have not looked back. The iPhone has consistently been the most powerful 
chip, at least on the CPU side and many times on the graphics side as well, it's been the most powerful mobile chip since 2013. That is a hell of a run considering that Qualcomm and all the various different uh, sort of ARM vendors, they're not sitting still like the way that Intel kind of did for a while, right? Like they're innovating yeah. really hard. It just so happens Apple's innovating harder. And I mean, yeah, you can say that maybe Apple might be a little happier to spend a little bit more on the silicon to, you know, buy up more wafers from TSMC before anyone else can get their hands on them. Sure, fair enough. You also can say that maybe they don't mind spending a little bit more money per chip and on the design because they know that they'll make it back in the the cost of the iPhone, whereas Qualcomm has to sell the chip to Samsung who then have to make the money on the whole product and stuff. Like, yeah, there's definitely sort of reasons there, but I still think the future looks bright. I will say maybe over the last couple of years, the massively that uh, sort of the iPhone and iPad have sort of enjoyed over the competition has maybe shrunk a little bit. I think other companies are starting to catch up a little bit, but not in a meaningful way. And certainly I don't see the writing on the wall where it's like, oh, the iPhone sort of, you know, caught, gotten been caught or anything like that. I think it's maybe not quite the blowout that it was in 2013, but there's still a lead there. And I don't see anything on the horizon to really shake that up. I mean, who knows? You know, all it takes is one bad chip to to ruin the, the whole thing. I mean, it happened with Intel. They had some huge foundry issues where they just couldn't, I mean, they maybe weren't innovating on the design side, but also they couldn't physically make the chips that they wanted to, which completely threw the roadmap off for years. Yeah. Uh, this stuff is really difficult to do. And I don't think it's likely, but it's certainly possible that Apple or anyone else could run into one of these big uh, sort of bottlenecks that could make a big bet, you know, and it could not pay off. I mean, the old saying in the in the foundry business was like, every time you launch a new product, you were betting the company on it because if it didn't work, well, too bad. You know, you're, you're, you're out of business. You know, someone else is going to eat your lunch. And I think Apple's probably a little smarter to, than that. But also, I think there's really some truth in sort of these bets are made years in advance, right? Like, you know, like we're using what? the A15 or A16 or whatever, like you're, they're designing the A18 and the A19 right now as we speak. Yeah. You know? like they, they think so many years in advance and they make a lot of decisions and lock a lot of things in years and years before we ever see them. So like when Intel was getting beat by AMD, they're like, oh no, well we have something for four years from now that can beat that, but there's nothing you can do to rush that. And I think the same thing goes where if someone like Qualcomm comes out with something crazy, then uh, it's, it, the die has already been cast for the next few years. And it's just a matter of kind of letting it play out. But, but I do think Apple is inevitably going to run into the laws of physics with the existing chip designs. You know, I think they're looking at three nanometer. Now at some point they're going to get so small that you can't get smaller. And you know, we're going to need like a quantum leap in check technology. It's going to become a, you know, magic drop of goo that does your processing or something, <laughs> you know, it's going to be something different at some point, but um, Apple at some point is going to slow down because there's nowhere else to go and people will start to catch up. But, but uh, as we sit here today, I, I agree with you. I think Apple has got a nice lead, but I, I'm not as into it as you are. I'm not following as close, but like even earlier when you were saying, how the iPhone video is superior, it's not because of the lens system or the sensor. I, I think it's mainly because of the chip. Oh, absolutely. The processing. I mean, if you ever look, so uh, especially I was, I was talking about a friend who does a lot of like 3D modeling and animation. And he was using an app uh, uh, with like the, the, the scanning tool to kind of like create some 3D models. And he was actually trying to shoot a video, but he was using the iPhone for like motion cap. And what he was using was this app. I don't remember what it was called, but it was basically using like the raw data from the sensor. So pre like processing and everything, it was just very basic looking. Yeah. And then it was using like the LiDAR and everything to pull it in. And he's like, 
wow, I didn't realize this video looks terrible. He's like, I didn't realize how much processing is really being done. If you look at what just comes straight off that lens and straight off the sensor versus what they're actually able to pull out of it with via the 75 steps of machine learning and color and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's like, you're 100% right. I think they're using roughly the same kind of lenses and sensors as pretty much everyone else has in the industry. There's nothing really unique or special about the, you know, about that. It's really about what's going on on the backside, which is why I like the Google Pixel for so many years use the exact same lens and the same sensor and everything but their processing had just been you know a huge leap over what everyone else was doing it took everyone a few years to catch up but google was like oh we did it we'll keep tweaking but they kept the exact same hardware for several generations i don't think that that's crazy to think that the software is a hundred percent the differentiator with the software and i guess the silicon with you know the actual you know processor and whatnot but as far as the actual lens the sensor that's capturing it that stuff is important but certainly less so than what kind of goes on in the back end. Yeah, we just did a show uh, critical of some of the Apple software. You know, some of the software that Apple's shipping right now it doesn't seem like it's getting a lot of attention. But but the the Photos app is not one of those programs. It is getting a ton of attention, <laughs> and you can tell some of the smartest people in the business are working on on taking that you know relatively garbage image and turning it into you know a beautiful flower. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's wild the amount of processing that happens, especially when you're shooting video, shooting 4K 60. That's like 8.3 million pixels, 60 times a second that are getting this huge amount of processing and everything. Like, it is really wild to think about just how much performance really goes into that versus something like a Sony camera, which, look, all props to Sony, they make great stuff. But, I mean, that's just taking the image off the sensor and saving it. There's not a lot of stuff that's going on there. Whereas the amount of processing that goes on in a smartphone is 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 tremendously impressive. I wonder if that's ever gonna get get if the if they're ever gonna meet in the middle. If people like Sony are gonna hire a bunch of engineers from Apple to try and do more of that with their big sensor. I'd be curious to see if that if that ever happens. I, I think so too. I mean, some of that is definitely by design because they're working with such tiny lenses and sensors that they need to do a lot more. Whereas yeah. when you have the luxury of a bigger sensor, you don't have to do as much because a lot of the work is done. It's just a big, high-quality sensor. But I agree. I think it will be interesting to see more sort of computational photography come into the the you know the cinema cameras and the stills cameras and whatnot of the world. I, I think it'll be interesting to see. But the fact that we haven't really seen a lot of that, and it's been so many years where you know the iPhone and Pixel and Samsung have all been doing it, makes me kind of wonder maybe there's a, some diminishing returns that they're going to hit there at some point. All I know is the iPhone shoots amazing video and that it's, it's great to be able to use it instead of a far more expensive, far more bulky and more difficult to use camera. Like a lot of times it's easier for us just to pull the iPhone out because we know it's going to look better because we just hit the record button. Whereas if you have a Sony or whatever, you're, oh, okay, let me make sure my white balance is set. Oh, I forgot my ND filter. There's so many different steps. You might miss the shot by the time you're actually ready to get it. Uh, what about the tablet space? We talked about the iPad earlier, but how does the iPad stack up against, you know, the tablets out there of the world from other manufacturers? Slam dunk. It's not much of a competition. And same thing with the Apple Watch. I'll, I'll throw them both in the same category of they're two products that are just head and shoulders better than anything else out there, right? Samsung is probably the second biggest, or they're definitely up there as far as tablets. And Android is okay, and uh, Samsung is actually, some of their customization has actually made it more usable. But Android's not really had much of a focus on tablets for a long time. Um, honestly, the main reason why tablets are even kind of decent on Android is because so many Android apps are now optimized for Chromebooks. And a lot of that work that you put into making a Chromebook version of your Android app 
also kind of comes across to the tablet side. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's not much of a competition. The iPad, I think, is head and shoulders above anything else in the tablet space. And I 100% put the Apple Watch up there too because I think people try and, you know, there's a lot of decent smartwatches out there, but nothing comes close to just the the overall just experience you get out of using the Apple Watch. Now, now you've used some of the alternate smartwatches, including some of them that are round. And I know there's a lot of talk in the Apple community. Like, did Apple get it right with the with the square face? Should they have had a round face? Um, <sighs> what's your experience with those round watches? I mean, look, ever since like the Moto 360 came out, like I, I think maybe even the Moto 360 may have come out before the Apple Watch, or it was around that time. I always thought the round was cool, but also, I don't know, I just... To me, it doesn't make a huge difference. I think a UI is certainly a lot easier to make on a square screen. I think once you make a round display, well, yes, your watch face will look better. Like I have a round watch face on my Apple Watch and I have a bunch of sort of complications around the corners, which kind of fills it out. But I agree, it doesn't look amazing. But uh, I think pretty much everyone who's done circular UIs I, you just lose something. It just doesn't quite make as much sense. You have more difficult kind of wrapping the text around. And it just, it feels like it might look a little bit better 10% of the time when it matters. But for me, I care way more about the actual functionality of the device. That I don't care that, oh, my Apple Watch looks generic and you know maybe it's not the most beautiful thing in the world. I don't care because I use an Apple Watch not for the looks, but I wear it because I use the functionality, right? So... Yeah, eh, eh, they, they're fine. Uh, I, I think the Apple Watch, I think Apple probably made the right decision there. So, okay, now we've opened that can. What, what is your watch face? Uh, it is the California face. I definitely had to check that. I used to use the GMT face, but it was actually when I got the, I was on the Apple Watch Series 4 for a while. When I switched to the 7, the GMT face, and maybe I'm just tripping, but the GMT face felt like it didn't scale right. Like it felt like it was designed for the older screen, like real estate or the resolution or something. It always just felt like it was my old watch that was like punched up by like 105% and I didn't like it. So I have switched to the California face, mostly because I like just loading up with complications. And you know, I can see my my decibel meter, my... my uh, temperature and sunrise and my circles. I like having all that information at a glance because I love the Apple Watch. I don't actually like interacting with the Apple Watch much. I like it just being there when I look down and check the the time or whatever the case is or to look at a notification. I don't actually like to like touch and interact with the Apple Watch because I've never found using a wrist-mounted anything to be particularly ergonomic for more than about two seconds at a time. Yeah, and so you use the California face in the round version, not the full screen version. Yeah, I do the round. I, I I cannot use a watch without complications. I'm so used to just looking down and seeing all that information. I, I, I can't get away from it. Yeah, I get it. I, I'm just, I can't settle on a face. I, I really like the California face partly. I think it's because I'm in California and it makes me smile, <laughs> you know, but... <laughs> But uh, yeah, I'm I'm with you, man. I I really I go back and forth between it's just a computer. Use the computer face, you know. Use one of the digital faces. But I I really like the 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 watch hands. That's how I grew up using watches, you know. Yeah, actually, I'm kind of sort of the opposite on the the hands. Like I've had the like pretty much ever since I've had an Apple Watch, I've always used the like you know the quote unquote real watch faces. I still sometimes have to think like. Is that oh, four, three, oh, 45? Like, I still have to think about it a little bit. Honestly, though, I just use it because the complications. <laughs> I feel like I'm pretty sure this is the face that has the most complications that is not hideously ugly. I'm pretty sure that's why I always land on this one. Yeah. 
<laughs> Isn't that sad? That's how we all do. It's like we pick the one that we hate the least. Yeah, that's exactly. that's what it comes down yep. to. <laughs> yeah, they could. They should really open that up. Yeah. Well, Austin, I'm so glad we were able to have you on today and kind of give us some insight from the other side of the fence. And um, we are all rooting for you with all the great stuff you're doing. I want everybody to head over to Austin's YouTube channel and sign up. This is the place that Steven and I get uh, keep up with the rest of the world. That's where you should, too. It's uh, just go to YouTube.com slash Austin Evans, A-U-S-T-I-N-E-V-A-N-S. You can check that out. Then, of course, on the relay, you can go to the test drivers with Mike and Austin. And I, you know what I like about that show is that, like, you bring out a side of Mike Hurley that I don't see very often. That's, <laughs> I, I don't know how else to put it, right? You know? Yeah. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's it's great. a good thing. It's a good thing. So uh, <laughs> definitely keep doing that. And then um, on Twitter, you're Austin, not Duncan. And I, what's the story behind that? I never got that. Oh, uh, when I first started the channel, uh, I had a, my username was Duncan33303, and it was just some dumb old username that I had had since I was like, you know, a, a kid basically. Yeah. And basically, uh, I kept using it for a while, but at a certain point I realized that I should stop calling myself Duncan because that's not my name. So uh, <laughs> I changed it. Uh, but of course, Austin Evans was taken everywhere. And so I kind of think I did it as like a joke. I think it was on Instagram first. And I just started using it in my socials pretty much everywhere. I was just like, well, I'm Austin, not Duncan. And then I just stuck and now I'm verified and I'm stuck with it forever. So yeah, that's the way it works, man. Sometimes you make a bad decision. So you have a social media account and mm-hmm. there it's you okay. go. Right? There are worse social media mistakes that I think I could have made. So absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I just like, I'm so glad that when I was a young man, there was no social media because I would have been dumb enough to fall into all of the traps. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Well, in the meantime, we are the Mac Power Users. You can find us at relay.fm slash MPU. Thank you to our sponsors, Text Expander, Indeed, and Memberful, and we'll see you next time.